Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So for a couple of weeks now, we've been looking at this final section of Paul's second canonical letter to the Corinthian church, a section in which the apostle seeks to undo the efforts of the false teachers who had weaseled their way into the church in Corinth. In verses 1 through 6, Paul pleaded with the members of the church, at least many of them, to reject the doctrines of the false teachers before his soon visit so that he would not have to show boldness when he arrived. He went on to defend his missionary techniques, his preaching of the truth, saying that it had power, divine power, to destroy strongholds. Paul intended to show that part of his work as an apostle, and really just as a faithful pastor, was to expose and demolish error. And he was prepared to do that in person if the church had not self-corrected by the time that he arrived. Last week we studied verses 7 through 12, a section in which Paul warned the Corinthian saints of the danger of accepting claims of religious authority without actually testing those claims. It seems that the false teachers, false apostles, Paul calls them in the next chapter, It seems that they had snuck into the church at Corinth claiming to have some special authority from Jerusalem and even seeking to discredit Paul in the authority that he actually had. These men patted themselves on the back. Paul writes in verse 12 that they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another. And he goes on to add, they are without understanding. It's quite easy to meet a standard if we make up the standard. And that's what they had done. That's why self-commendation, we're going to see this today, is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's irrelevant. In the passage we're studying this morning, Paul actually begins looking at a subject that he will address for the next two chapters. The subject of boasting. You probably picked up on it as we immediately began to read. But we will not boast beyond limits. But we will boast 
only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. That's why we just sang multiple songs about boasting in the Lord and not in ourselves. Look, this was so needful considering the state of the church there in Corinth and the claims of the false teachers that had bewitched the saints. But man, it is so needful for us today. Boasting comes so naturally. And what's sad is that it's just as common among groups that seem to have a theological grasp of the doctrine of God's sovereign grace than it is among any other group. Perhaps we aren't applying the theology very well. This passage is going to challenge us. The title of my sermon this morning is The Approval That Matters. The Approval That Matters. In this text, after explaining what God has done through him in Corinth, the Apostle Paul explains that the only approval that matters is the Lord's approval. Alright, let's get into this and see what all we can dig up. Verse 13, But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. So, okay, remember what Paul has said about these false teachers. They were making claims based on their self-commendation, on their commendation of one another. They boasted of things that they had not done. They boasted of authority that they did not actually possess. And Paul says they are without understanding. Or perhaps we might say they expose their ignorance. Here though, Paul, in contrast to the false teachers, he displays the opposite spirit. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to him to reach there to the church in Corinth. In other words, Paul could rightly lay claim to having founded the church in Corinth. That's going to become crystal clear here in just a moment. He is not overstating the case. In fact, most of these saints had been saved through Paul's preaching of the gospel and the vast majority of them had sat under his ministry for a year and a half after the church was established. These were indisputable facts, details of which everyone should have been able to agree. At the very least, the members of the church should have admitted these things. Notice what Paul says, verse 14. We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Paul says he's not, he's not overextending. Or we might say he is not overstepping his bounds. God had assigned Paul and his missionary team a certain sphere of influence. We just studied this recently in Acts chapter 9. Remember what God told Ananias when he was sending him to visit Paul after his conversion. God said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul was primarily at least sent into Gentile lands. That does not mean he did not preach to Jews. 
That is not it at all. In our, in our study in Acts, as we work through Paul's missionary trips, we will see that Paul typically hated straight for the Jewish synagogue when he headed into a town. But his missionary work was primarily carried out in Gentile lands, not within the borders of the nation of Israel. In fact, in Galatians 2, Paul says of the apostles in Jerusalem, when they saw that I, Paul, had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship along with Barnabas that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's ministry was primarily to Gentile lands. He preached in the synagogues when he was in those areas, but primarily Paul reached Gentile cities with the gospel. And one of those Gentile cities Paul went to was Corinth, where he had had much success. Paul and his traveling companions were, in fact, according to this verse, the very first to visit the city of Corinth preaching the gospel. A fact that is undeniable. That said, there is little doubt that Paul is aiming here at claims made by the false teachers. Men that had come into the church claiming some type of higher authority and higher knowledge than the Apostle Paul. We talked about that last week as we worked through that passage. But here we get a little more insight as to what they seem to be asserting. Paul's defense of his ministry to the Corinthian saints seems to be, at the very least, seems to suggest that these false teachers were claiming to be the true founders of the church. Again, because they boasted of this higher authority than Paul, this higher knowledge beyond anything Paul had. Hold on to that thought. We'll, we'll go on to that here in just a moment. Let's just move on. Verse 15, We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. There's a lot of words here. Let's see if we can, we can break them down. Paul had no interest in boasting beyond his limits in the labor of other men. He is clear about that. The false teachers, on the other hand, didn't have any problem boasting in Paul's work that had been done in Corinth and claiming that it was their own. But not Paul and his companions. They were, they were honest men. They were men of integrity. Paul did not take credit for the work of someone else. That is simply deceitful. It, it would be like me claiming to be the founding pastor here at this church. I am not. I am in fact the third man to serve in this particular position of leading elder. 
And as Apollos watered a field that Paul had planted, so I am merely watering a field planted by two men prior to me. That is an irrefutable fact. And I would be dishonest to say anything else. Think of this. Just say there is a church in another country that had been established for decades, a, a, very, a very healthy church that had evangelized zealously, discipled her, disciple, I mean, discipled her members with great intent, and had preached the Word of God faithfully in that region. Okay, just say we sent Brian and Jacob and Blake over there to work with that group for some reason. I really don't have a valid reason that we would do that, but just stick with me for hypothetical purposes. Would we be honest or dishonest to say we planted that church? We would be completely dishonest to say that. And yet that is, that is precisely what these false teachers are doing right here in Corinth. Paul planted the church. Paul pastored the church for a year and a half. And they are claiming to be the ones that really planted it. Listen, we would be boasting beyond our limit in the labor of others if we tried to pull that. We'd be crediting ourselves with starting a work that had been established for, for decades and really after we left was still operating in much the same fashion it was when we got there. Listen, our, our ministry is not primarily to be proselytism. In other words, taking other churches' members from them. That's, that's not. But our, our primary mission is evangelism. Preaching the gospel to the lost world. Jesus did not say go into the world and re-baptize and reorganize all the different churches out there. He didn't say that. He said go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what He said. That is our mission. Reach the unreached with the gospel. Paul refused to take credit for other men's work. While the false, the false teachers seemed quite adept in taking credit for Paul's work. Then notice what Paul wants to happen here within the church at Corinth. But our hope is that as your faith increases our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. That's, that's a bit confusing. Perhaps the NIV will offer some clarity. Here's how its translators render this. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. Here's what Paul is attempting to say. He's essentially saying that he hopes to win them back from the clutches of the false teachers. Paul wants them to return to him so that his influence spreads throughout the church once again. That's what Paul wants. Then, once that happens, Paul desires to move on beyond them to areas unreached by the gospel. Notice, Paul's goal in regaining influence in the church at Corinth was so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. So Paul, Paul's vision for missionary work extended into foreign, unreached people groups. He actually says much the same in the book of Romans. He says, 
Quote Romans 15, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now that's the same thing he's saying here. He wanted to go into areas that were unreached. What was holding up progress? Well, let me ask it this way. Who was standing in the road when Paul was trying to go, hindering him from taking his next foreign missions trip? The church at Corinth is the hindrance. That's the point. Look, Paul is the ever-loving pastor, and so he simply could not go on until the church in Corinth was settled. They were holding up progress for Paul to go on out. Then he writes again, similar to what he's already said, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Paul is not only explaining his goal, but without a doubt, he is here once again calling into question the integrity of the false teachers. They were boasting of work already done in another's areas of influence. Paul's influence. Paul's area of influence. Specifically, Corinth. And so Paul is is humbly sharing his goal not to work in another's area of influence, but he's also correcting those false teachers for claiming to be the pastors at Corinth, which is what Paul's duty had been. He's killing two birds with one stone, we might say. Now just for the record, Paul is not opposed to building on another's work. He's not opposed to that. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, according to the grace of God given to me like a Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Look, Paul is not opposed to building on the foundation laid by other men. In fact, Paul is very much for that. As long as one builds properly with the truth. The problem in this text is that the false teachers were taking credit for someone else's work when in fact Paul is the one that had done the work. It's just pure deception. Furthermore, they were actually not building properly off of the foundation. They were destroying the foundation. We're going to see in chapter 11 verse 4 that they preached another Jesus, a different Gospel. And so Paul here calls them to the mat. Paul is willing to fight for the truth when it is necessary. And then notice, Paul directs us to the proper place to boast. For anything and everything that we do, mission work, home missions, church work here, whatever, it doesn't matter. Notice verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul is alluding to Jeremiah chapter 9. This had to have been a favorite passage of of Paul's. He's used it before. He used it actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's what he wrote there. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And because of Him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption... So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Same quote from the same passage. Look, In other words, what Paul is saying there is because of 
Him because God was at work in you. That's why you are in Christ Jesus. So, boast in the Lord, not in yourselves. So in 1 Corinthians 1, the primary subject there was salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. You have no reason to boast. But here, though salvation is part of this, Paul's thinking bigger. Here, all ministerial accomplishments, including evangelistic accomplishments, whatever, must be credited to the Lord and Him alone. Kent Hughes writes this, quote, It is human to boast. We all do it very well. But to boast in the Lord is heavenly. End quote. Amen. Amen. Now what were the false teachers doing? We talked about this last week. They were enamored by their own talents. They were enamored by their own stage presence and their oratorical skills, their ability to, to teach, to put words together. And that's what they were boasting in. Meanwhile, Paul gave the Lord all the credit for whatever fruit became from his work. You see, there's a complete and total different goal in mind. Paul has a desire to glorify God, while the false teachers have a desire to glorify themselves. Here's the entire quote from Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Again, this had to be a favorite passage of the Apostle Paul. And you know, really, considering all of his accomplishments in memory, in ministry, probably this passage kept Paul very grounded and reminded that it actually wasn't him, it was actually God. This text actually reminds me of, of Jesus' words when he sent the 72 out in Luke 10. The, 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 those missionaries returned to him, and here's what they said. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus responded in saying, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. End quote. It's not exactly the, the same point that Jeremiah is making, but, it, but it's in the same vein. We, we must always keep the bigger picture in mind that we are just tools in the hands of the sovereign of the universe. Again, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul got it. right, And we need to get it. We, we may plant, we may water, but if there is any growth, it is not attributed to us and our skills. It is God who gave the growth. Like I, I can only assume that the false teachers did not view the sovereignty of God this way at all. I, I can only assume because of their confidence in their skills 
that they used gimmicks and underhanded tactics to convert people to Jesus. Look, Paul has a trump card for the false teachers. For those of you who don't know what a trump card is, it's like a a master card in a card game that can pretty much be played at any moment and it just undoes all of your opponents. And Paul lays it down right here. Here's what he says. Verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. That's heavy. Look, whatever approval we give ourselves is completely, entirely irrelevant. When I was a manager in the financial world, we had employees fill out an annual, an annual review of their own work. I had to fill one out, but they had to fill one out as well. And that process exposed just how faulty self-commendation actually is. Even some of the absolutely worst employees I ever managed saw themselves as elite performers. It was laughable if it wasn't so sad. Look, the same is true in ministry or or for the layperson. Our own commendation of ourself carries precisely no weight. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. Remember the practice of the false teachers back in verse 12? Look. Paul says of them, not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding or or they expose their own ignorance. What actually matters? Paul says, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Another quote from 1 Corinthians, one more time, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it this way, but with me it is a very small, (coughs) excuse me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I'm glad you're sitting down. I want to share something with you this morning that may shock some of you, but you need to hear it nevertheless. None of us, none of us, absolutely none of us, see problems with ourselves as easily as we see them in other people. We don't. Some of you are worse than that than others, but we all have that issue. That is a fact we would do well to grasp before we start throwing off on the next person. Moyer Hubbard writes it this way, quote, Our tendency is to magnify our strengths, ignore our weaknesses, and then compare ourselves favorably to others. End quote. Amen. That is exactly how we naturally are built. Well, look what Paul says back there in 1 Corinthians 4 is that even though he is not aware of anything against himself, he still is not acquitted. 
It's the Lord who judges him. And it is the Lord who will judge us all. The false teachers had set up their own subjective standard. They had met that standard. And they expected the Lord to accept their own personal evaluation. Well, that's not how it works. Only the Lord's approval matters. At least eternally. Okay, we breezed through the text. We're not going to breeze through the application though. Let's look and see what all we can glean here. First of all, our ministry must not be devoted to validating ourselves while attempting to discredit everyone else. That is not Paul's focus. He is clear about that. He was forced by the false teachers into this defense of his apostolic you know, uh, authority that Christ had given to him. But he does not want to do this. The last thing we need as a church is for our church leaders to spend the bulk of our time pointing out all the faults in everyone else as if we don't have any faults ourselves. I've been in such services. It becomes nothing more than a rah-rah session where commending oneself and one's tribe is the expected norm. According to the Apostle Paul, pinned under the divine direction of the Holy Spirit, such rah-rah sessions do not matter at all. They carry precisely no weight. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved. And all the while, if we sit under that, we are led to believe we are the elite of the elite just on the basis that we are sitting in the right pew, in the right building. Listen, if we have anything to offer God, it will not be based on where you are sitting right now. It will be based on your position in Jesus Christ. By the authority then of the Word of God, self-commendation is vanity. And it should be avoided at all costs. It's just going to confuse us. In fact, God says in Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. So we need to stop trying to rob God of His glory. We must open the Word of God, hear what God has said to us, because it, it alone is declared under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we do not do that, we may very well diagnose ourselves as healthy when in fact we are deathly sick. I know that can happen because it happened to a church in the Bible. In Revelation 3, Jesus diagnosed the church in Sardis. Here's what He said, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Listen, what they thought about themselves, it didn't matter. What they thought and what the great physician knew we're quite the opposite. How can a church be so wrong on their assessment? I mean, how could Sardis 
believed they were very alive and healthy, and Jesus diagnosed them as dead. How could they be so wrong? Have you ever seen a post on social media where someone uses a filter on a photo? Ever seen it? For those of you a little long in the tooth... A filter is used on a photograph to spruce up somebody's looks, smooth out wrinkles, wipe away any blemishes, shine up nappy hair, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. But those filters do not display the true reality. The person doesn't actually look like what the filter suggests. Look, what these false teachers in Corinth had done is quite similar to that photo filter. They had created their own subjective standard. They had met that standard. They had declared themselves to be healthy and even more than healthy, the healthiest of all, even more healthy than Paul himself. They viewed themselves through their own filter. We might say through their own set of lenses. And so they were completely oblivious to their actual problems. Guys, listen, we've been given a filter by which we are to measure ourselves through which we can make sure we are following the teachings of the Lord. The filter is the Bible and it is the only standard God has given us to prepare us for the day of judgment. Nothing else. Church covenants are irrelevant if they do not agree with Scripture. Traditions, though necessary everywhere, are irrelevant if they do not uh, uh, conform to Scripture. Extra-biblical scruples, none of that matters. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is our God, and it is all that the Lord will hold us accountable for. Okay, that's point one. Second point. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again this morning because it's greatly important. A church must make judgments about its leaders. Holding them accountable for preaching the text. That's what Paul is telling this assembly of saints here in Corinth. Church, listen. If the Scriptures have been inspired by God to enable us to be complete, equipped for every good work, and then our elders and our teachers don't preach the Bible, what is the logical outcome? That's not a difficult question. The answer is quite simple. If we don't know the Bible, rather than moving towards health, we will actually be moving in the opposite direction. Understand, no church and no Christian is sitting still. Everyone's moving. We are all moving all the time. We are either moving in a positive direction scripturally or we are moving in a negative direction unbiblically. If we want to become more and more healthy as individuals and as a church, we must hold our leaders, our elders, our teachers, even our music leaders accountable to lead us according to God's Word. To do otherwise is a recipe for apostasy. And that's why Paul is so committed to getting the church at Corinth back on the right path 
before he goes off into foreign lands beyond them to spread the gospel. He doesn't want to leave them on the road to apostasy. Third, third point. There is a time to defend oneself against false charges. There is a time. Paul is doing that here. There's a time to fight. There's a time for war. Now, Paul didn't go looking for a fight. That's not what happened here at all. But he fought nevertheless because the truth was at stake. We must, like Paul, fight with a good attitude within the rules. This is where we often struggle to do so. Nevertheless, when the truth is at stake, when souls of men are in the balance, men and women of God must stand up and fight for the truth. That is part of our calling. Being silent is not okay. The truth is far more important than many other things we passionately fight for. Politics, sports, job promotions, whatever. The truth of Scripture is far, far and away more important than those things. The very first instruction in Ephesians 6 in that whole armor of God passage says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. First thing in the armor of God. Now just the fact that it's first tells us that it's vitally important. It's at the head of the list. And the fact that he says stand is important. That's the first imperative in the statement. Stand, therefore. And what must we stand in? The truth. The truth. Lord, help us to stand, but help us to do so with the right attitude and with integrity. That leads to my fourth point. Jacob had four points. Let's see if I can out... Jacob, Jacob, we must all give an account. And the approval of the Lord is all that matters and all that will matter on that day. Now look, we want to give God credit for whatever increase we may experience. Paul is clear about that here in this text. But look, Christian work is work and it takes effort. Paul sowed seed. Apollos watered those seeds. It was work. You know, I'm quite sure that we will all be a bit shocked that the Lord does not judge us nearly as well as we evaluate ourselves. Some of us are really good at saying, you know, we're just all sorry. Look, we may get that theologically. But the fact that we aren't making improvements is a pretty good indication that we aren't getting it practically. Help us to be better. I'm mean, like, just saying those things doesn't merit any rewards. The good we say about ourselves or even the good that others say about us does not matter in the scope of eternity. The Lord's approval is all that matters. On the, on the other side, the false things people say about us, they don't matter either because the Lord's approval is all that matters. Well, Paul told young Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And though Paul is is talking to the lead elder of, of a church about his duty as a preacher, we will all one day present ourselves to the Lord. There's no exception in this room. So we need to be at work so that we are not ashamed. You may think I'm pressing this point too much. I'm not, but you may think I am. 
you will be judged according to one standard. The Word of God. The Bible. Nothing else. In this book, God has told us all He wants us to know. And we're instructed to do those things. We are not going into the judgment blind. There will be no, I didn't know. No, you got a book. You don't have to worry about church tradition. You don't have to worry about supposed unctions from the Holy Spirit. You don't even have to worry about what Mama says, though it is important. The Bible alone is our standard in God. And if we follow it, we can expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set over you or set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. One more point. I win. Really quickly. I don't want to overlook this because I just breezed through it in the text. Let us be zealous for the lands beyond that Paul spoke about here in this text. Areas where Christ has not been named. We must be interested in our own subdivisions and our own workplaces. Yes, that is certainly our responsibility. I'm not saying otherwise. But we must also desire to see the gospel spread to the ends of the world so that Christ is named everywhere. I double-checked these numbers this morning at joshuaproject.net. You should check that out sometimes. But anyway, these, these numbers may shock you. Today, 41.9% of the world is unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 41.9%. Those people do not know who Jesus is and if you asked them about Him, they would say, I've never heard that name. There are not enough believers, and in many instances, no believers in those areas to evangelize. So while we are doing missionary work where God has planted us, and we should be doing that, let us also remember missionaries like the Valandries or Dan and Sonny Sullivan who are in Thailand and other countries preaching the gospel. Let us pray for them with regularity. Let us support them as we have ability. Let our heart break for any and all, here or abroad, who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I'm going to close today with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher in the 19th century. He once said this, quote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. End quote. Stand with me, if you will.